0: Good afternoon Memorial Baptist friends and family and welcome to our midweek edition of our podcast for September 9th 2020. I hope you're having a great week. Uh, We had a great week of worship this past Sunday. Uh, Our worship team did an amazing job leading our worship time. I just want to thank each of them uh, and each one of you who added to the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is when we come together as a corporate body. You know, I want to, I want to call attention to all of our senior adults. Um, we will begin an ongoing Sunday school Bible class in the Fellowship Hall for our seniors. Um, September 20th, uh, we'll begin at 9.30 a.m. and we'll go to 10.30 for an hour. Uh, and this senior adult Sunday school hour will be for those who maybe haven't been able to get out and worship with us. Um, something special for our seniors brother john webb will be facilitating our bible study time together Um, so if you're uh, 60 plus and want to mask up and come out to the fellowship hall we'll be social distancing but you should be able to see some friends and catch up some so i would i will look forward to seeing you there on the 20th Um, please come and join us on that same day, uh, Sunday, uh, September 20th, our NBC college ministry will start back to Sunday school as well. Uh, Brother Braden Tanner will be teaching these students in the, in the weeks that remain in this semester. You know, we have such a limited time to spend with these college students, and uh, this year um, they're going to go home for Thanksgiving and they won't be returning until after the new year. So it's kind of a different setup this year, so the time is limited. Uh, we are delighted to be able to minister to them in this way, and thank you, Memorial Baptist Church Family for praying for them and for praying for Braden in this ministry what a What a blessing it is to our entire body. Um, we will be continuing to open up different aspects of our church ministry as we continue to see our state and local areas open up. Uh, we are hoping to add uh, other Sunday morning ministries like children 's Sunday School and Youth Sunday School as well as our Wednesday evening activities, hopefully uh, around the first part of October. Um, If you have any questions or concerns, please call us. I know this is not easy for any of us. Uh, We are trying to keep our people and our most vulnerable uh, ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. Again, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. Uh, Each of us should assess our, our risk individually and in relation to our own families. So please exercise the freedom and good sense to do what you need to do, extending grace to others as they do the same thing. Now, before we jump into our uh, scripture passage for this afternoon, I'd like for us to pray together. And uh, if you would, uh, pray with me while I lead us in prayer. Even as I'm recording this, I I know it's uh, pouring down rain outside, and so I'm thankful to God for the rain, uh, especially in September. And uh, we're just thankful for that. So I uh, just, let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, pray with me, if you will. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for uh, our church. I thank you for uh, how you bless us. I thank you for, even in spite of all of the things that have happened this year, that you have, have guided us and carried us through. And uh, what a blessing it is, Father. I want to thank you, Lord, for the rain. Uh, that we we hear outside, I thank you for that. I I praise you for uh, just drenching your earth, Father, with with your wonderful uh, water. And I, I know God, it's refreshing to all of the the plants and animals and and just the whole earth uh, uh, resounds with your glory. Um, so thank you, Father. And I pray that even as the rain is falling outside, that you would rain in us, Lord Jesus that you would cover us the way that your reign covers this earth. Father, I thank you for all of our teachers uh, who are helping uh, educate children at schools. And uh, I pray for safety for them. I pray, Father, for our administrations, uh, those who are giving guidance to the teachers and others and the students. I pray that you would bless them. I ask, Father, that you would be with all of our um, military Uh, that is protecting our freedoms around the world. Um, Father, I pray for um, all of our uh, police and first responders. I I thank you, Father, for those who keep us safe uh, while we sleep and during the day and for those that come running when the rest of the world uh, goes out. So I pray, Father, that you would um, just bless them. I pray for all of our first responders. Lord I lift up uh our frontline workers who are helping uh with those that have the covid and I pray that you would just continue to give them health and and able to ability to work and and um Father I ask that you would just um push back the darkness in our nation. I, I lift up our nation to you Father. I lift up our president. I lift up um all of the uh the government leaders and I pray Father for peace. I pray for um, unity, I pray, Father, that that you would help us as we continue to seek you in our nation. Um, Father, I want to lift up our homebound to you, uh, Father. Those that may not have an opportunity to get out, and I pray that you would bless them. I pray, Father, that you would they would sense your presence with them even now, Father, and that you would just minister to them in a special way. I pray for those that are um, grieving. I pray for those that are uh, ill. I pray for those who are in need of a touch from you. I pray, Father, that your healing hand would be upon them. Father, we are so blessed to call you our Lord. We're so blessed, Holy Spirit, to to have you in our lives and, and to be our teacher and guide. I pray, Father, for sweeping revival. I pray that you would draw the souls of men and women to yourself. And, Father, that you would save them uh, for all eternity. Uh, we know that it's your will, Father, that, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I pray, Father, for that, that you would bring people to yourself. Help us, Father, to work in, to labor in your vineyards and to help plant and plow and water so that uh, a bountiful harvest will 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 be realized for your kingdom work. Father, be with our missionaries around the world who are out establishing beachheads on these dark areas of the world. And uh, Father, I pray that the gospel would ring forth. And Father, that that you would just uh, help them as they carry the gospel to all, all these places all over the world. Father, it's our joy to love you. It's our joy to be called your children. It's our joy to be involved in your kingdom work. And so I pray, Father, that even now, um, whatever it is that we might be able to do today to further your kingdom, that you would put it on our hearts and that we would carry it out. Father, today is a great day. We thank you for all that you have done for us today. Um, It's our our joy and our privilege um, to worship you. Guide us as we study your word so that we might know you better. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoy cooking and and all things surrounding food. Um, you know, the word entree is an interesting word because it has two different, distinct meanings. Uh, if we were eating, say, in America, we would say the entree refers to the main course of the meal, the main course. However, in modern French. Entree refers to a dish served before the main course of a meal and is generally synonymous with terms like hors d'oeuvres or appetizer or maybe starter. Um, However, as entree is most commonly used in English, it refers to the main meal. Now, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, uh, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Hebrews 10, 18, where we ended up last week, Uh, is, as it were, the appetizer. And this section now is the entree, the main meal. It begins the the main meal here. So entree also means freedom of access. It speaks of a way or passage by which has the right or privilege to enter some place. You can see where we are going. The truth is, is that we have the freedom to enter God's throne room, into his very presence. For we are washed white as snow, as it talks about in Isaiah one eighteen, by the blood of the lamb, as it talks about in 1 Peter 1.19. See, there's a nice play on words here, uh, because in Hebrews 5.14, the writer has already stated that solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained, you know, not, you know, we work out not in Gold's Gym, but in God's Gym, to discern good and evil. The truths in this section are surely solid food, which we can put into practice and train our spiritual senses into growing in Christ likeness. So, the writer of Hebrews, and I, as I exposit his words, will now set the table for you, my friends. This truth begs several questions. Will you come to the table and eat? Are you hungry? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If you do, then in partaking of this solid food, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, as it says in Matthew 6, you, 5, 6, you shall be satisfied. Oh, that God the Spirit would make us all hunger and thirst for this righteousness, and then would feed us with the bread of life, the, the truths of our great high priest Jesus Christ, all while transforming us from glory to glory into his likeness. Amen. You know, when a person hears the gospel, the good news of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ, and when that person understands the gospel and believes that the gospel is true, and when they, to some extent, commit himself or herself to that understanding, then they will, from that point, either go on to be a true believer or fall back to be an apostate. There are only two possible responses to the knowledge of the gospel. See, when an individual knows the truth of the gospel, he either goes on to believe or falls back into apostasy. And an apostate is one who rejects the truth having known it. That's different from somebody who maybe rejects only knowing a portion of it or doesn't really quite get it. There are only two possible responses to the individual who intellectually understands the truth of the gospel. And they are to go on to faith or to fall back into a state of apostasy which deserves the severest kind of punishment. Now today we're going to consider the first of those two possibilities. And that is the positive response to the new covenant or what we might call salvation A man knows the truth. A person knows the truth. He understands the truth. And to a certain measure, they yield to that truth. And at that point, if he goes forward and commits his life to Christ, he has taken a positive response to the truth. If he falls back, it's a negative response. And we're going to consider the negative response next week, the the horrible tragedy beginning in Hebrews 10.26, of willful apostasy, And what happens when a person willingly has a negative response to the gospel? But tonight we're keeping it positive. (laughs) It's going to be positive in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 26. We're going to read that in just a moment. You know what makes a stew so very tasty? Hours of simmering. So they get all the juices out of all the ingredients. And when you taste it, you're you're getting the best of what's in each ingredient. Listen, our our Sunday morning worship time should be a culmination of a people who've been simmering all week in the presence of God. When we simmer every day in the presence of God and then come on Sunday morning and, and mix it all together mix all of it together, there's an aroma and a smell of the grace and the goodness of God that lifts up to heaven. You know, God pulls off the lid and, and he says, hmm, that's my people in their corporate gatherings this morning. Oh, that aroma is great. And folks, that's worship. When well, we've been simmering all week in the presence of God and then come together as a corporate body, Let's read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and following. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the, the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, what a great passage of Scripture. You know, in this passage, the the writer talks about having access in, in verses 19 and 20. And he's talking about Uh, having boldness and confidence, if you will. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, you know, and and, uh, having that boldness and confidence to enter, you know, by itself, human effort is doomed to ultimate failure. You know, confidence training seems to be the, the cry of the day. We have seminars to build our confidence in our business ventures. We have sports camps to build confidence in our kids. But you know, David made it very clear in Psalms 127, verse 1, he said, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, he doesn't ask whether you feel confident The writer of Hebrews is saying, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, he says a believer has it, not have I measured up, not have I lived up to a certain standard. He says a believer has it, period. This confidence, confidence of that conviction will always prevail. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But understand, it's only by the blood of Jesus. It's only by the blood of our Savior, Jesus. You know, verse 20 talks about the veil, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. You know, the veil was a, once it was a barrier keeping people out, but now it is a a portal, a, a gate, an entrance into. You know, Charles Wesley, he stated it best. He said, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. See, there's only one thing between you, dear saint, and God the Father, and that's the torn flesh, the veil of Jesus Christ. So we have access through Jesus Christ to the throne room of God the Father. Not only that, we also have advocacy. Verse 21 says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, (laughs) I love that. He is our high priest. Believers not only have a confident spirit, but we've also got a competent advocate. See, our advocate, Jesus, is continually available, completely aware of our present situations and constantly involved with us working all things together for good. This verse helps us to confidently point our ship into the high seas with strength and power. We are not only to exist in a hostile culture, but we're actually to buck its waves. You know, in AD 404, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, he was brought in before the Roman emperor, and the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. And Chrysostom responded, he said, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's home. But I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, said Chrysostom. I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. But I'll drive you away from your friends and you'll have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Wow. Huh. You know, arrogance should never be the Christian's way. But confidence, our confidence in Jesus Christ, must mark our life. So not presumptuously, not flippantly, not haphazardly, but confidently. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since we have confidence. that all leading up to verse 22, which says, let us draw near. With a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. (laughs) Let us draw near. Since Jesus provided access of the God of heaven, we can draw near to him. Here we find uh, the motive for all subsequent action. It means more than drawing near by praying, because it's in the, the present tense, inferring a continual drawing near. This is like what a a wick is to a lamp. It continually draws oil for the light. So we ought to continually draw from God the strength and grace we need to function. You say, well, Brother Ridge, how do we do this? He says here, draw near with sincerity, with a true heart. In other words, without any kind of pretending, without any kind of religious pretense. He also says to draw near with belief, having the full assurance of faith. Believe in simple faith, that God means what he says. Take God at his word. Draw near with sincerity. Draw near with belief. He also says draw near without guilt, heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. See, we become guilt-free only when our conscience is clear. And that only through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. See, this happens at salvation. It's that inner cleansing that is far superior to the outside. So we draw near with sincerity. We draw near with belief. We draw near without guilt. And he also says, draw near with integrity. Bodies washed with pure water. See, baptism is our time to public, publicly profess our commitment to Christ, which symbolizes our being made clean. So let us draw near with sincerity, with belief, without guilt, with integrity. I love that. He goes on to say, let us hold fast, in verse 23. Let us hold fast The confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. say, well, hold fast to what? You know, the confession of our hope. In other words, the sharing, the the confession of our faith and hope with others, which is the next logical step after believing, is we share that with others. We keep on confessing. We hold fast to that confession of our hope. See, these professing Hebrew Christians were encouraged to hold fast to their original confession of faith in Christ. This looks back to when they first believed in Christ and confessed Him before others, before men. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth... Man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. See, at that time, they had confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. They acknowledged Him to be the only way to God. They believed Him to be their only hope of salvation, but now they were wavering from that original commitment. They were yielding to pressure and compromising truth because of persecution from the unsaved Jews. They had a responsibility to be true to themselves for they were to hold fast to their original confession of Christ before other men, before people. They were to hold fast to right doctrine about Christ and to speak out for Christ just as they originally shared Christ before others. They were to continue to do so. See, assurance comes as we hold tight to our confession of christ before others and then continue to confess him before others when we do this in faithfulness we will see some folks come to a saving relationship with jesus christ and this will also bring us assurance of our own salvation this is such a great passage you know verse 24 says let us consider let us consider what one another, each other, the body of Christ. You know, to consider means to direct one's whole mind towards an object or to immerse oneself in it, to apprehend it in its whole entirety, in its whole com- in, you know, compass. Not shake your finger at a brother or sister in the Lord. Not lecture a brother or sister in the Lord. Instead, using encouraging words and being a good example. You know, John Wesley's rule of conduct. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. I love that. Good words. So it says, consider one another. Stir up, spur on, urge, sharpen, to incite or to stimulate, to provoke. Be a positive irritant is what it's saying. I mean, that's how pearls are made, right? I mean, an oyster grows a pearl from an irritant, usually a piece of sand. Some kind of irritant gets into the oyster's shell and the oyster supplies a, a nacre uh, and surrounds it and, and making something beautiful out of the very object that irritated it. The writer says we need to do the same thing. Be that piece of sand in a brother or sister's life, allowing the Holy Spirit to provide the knacker of love by the accumulation of gradual, beautiful layers to their lives. I really like the way Larry Osborne put it. He said, if you're struggling in sin, I'm here to help you. If you're defending your sin i'm here to challenge you if you're setting up camp in your sin i'm here to discipline you (laughs) oh isn't that what we need that's what our world needs so let's be a positive irritant toward corporate worship and encouragement i mean let us consider one another how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds The second part of 25, verse 25, says, Let us not forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. And really, this is talking about corporate worship. Uh, Newsflash, Jesus is not giving up on the church. His church, his wife, says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the church is an intentional community of disciples living out life together. Corporate worship is not an option for a Christian. It's a necessity. If church services grow dull or boring, they need renewal, not abandonment. We're not independent, but interdependent or mutually dependent upon one another. We're not to live a life of isolated individualism. We are seen as both individuals and collective. There's one body, one spirit, one baptism. You know, John Donne, the poet, he said, "No man is an island. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main." You know, one person asked, "Well, if you don't go to God's house?" Why should he come to yours? I think it's a fair question. Another asked, if you don't like being around Christians down here, what makes you think you're going to like a place full of them for all eternity? Right? But folks, this isn't a new problem. In the early church, their attendance fell off due to persecution, due to ostracism, due to apostasy and even arrogance. So why do people stay away from church today, apart from, let's say, COVID? Why do people stay away from church? Well, some people, out of fear of people asking, you know, what will people say? I mean, I've been gone a while. Are they going to know what I've done? Are they going to know where I've been? Are they going to ask questions about it? Maybe I've been laying low and I've been grieving or or whatever, and they just, people are nosy. Some people stay away from church out of fear of people asking them questions. Some people may stay out of church for fear of catching a church disease called hypocrisy. I guess the thought is, if I get near a hypocrite, it might be catchy, so I better stay away. (laughs) <laughs> Some people, it's just pure laziness. They're Out of laziness. Just easier to sleep in. Just easier to do what I want to do than get up, get ready, uh, go down to the church house and get my life back on keel with God. Sometimes because no one at church is like me. This is kind of an arrogant one. Uh Maybe they think, well, they're not as smart as I am, or maybe they're, they're, like, they're not as wealthy as I am, or they're just not my people. They're not as spiritual as me. You know, interesting. interestingly, people join clubs for this reason, to be in a similar group. But understand this, God's family isn't set up that way. It was for all people, all people, that Christ died. So there's actually only two different groups of people at church. People you'd choose to hang out with and people you wouldn't. But we don't get to choose our family, right? <laughs> Some people stay away from church out of conceit. I mean, this they might say, you know, they don't need the church. Or maybe they feel like they're intellectually beyond the standard of preaching there. Or an accomplished musician where his focus is musical perfection and not worship of the king. I really liked what Kent Hughes said. He said, it's true. A person does not have to go to church to be a Christian. He does not have to go home to be married either. But in both cases... If he does not, he will have a very poor relationship. So I have begged the question here, why should a Christian go to church? Well, because Jesus' presence is in the gathered church. In Revelation 2.1, one of the first things Jesus reveals to John is where he is. He's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the churches. He's walking in the midst of the churches. Why should a Christian go to church? Because Jesus' presence is in the gathered church. Also because God has placed us in community for a reason. Now think about this. I mean, kind of in a negative sense. You know, we've seen a lot of mobs and things on the news lately. And a mob, negative sense, a mob tends to descend to a much deeper level of cruelty than an individual would. Have a mob mentality is what we call it. The appreciation and enjoyment of music lovers, either a symphony or maybe a rock concert, is more intense than that of a single listener at home with their music. When you go to a concert, when you go to a concert hall, it's different, it's more intense, there's more enjoyment, there's more people listening, there's something there. The folks, it's true for worship as well. The more worshipers, the wonderful Something wonderful happens there. Why should a Christian go to church? Because great theological truths are best learned corporately with all the saints. Paul in Ephesians 3.18 prays that the church in Ephesus may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Great theological truths are best learned corporately with all the saints. I would say also because love is a communal activity. You might be able to develop your faith and hope while you're alone. I think that's probably questionable. But you cannot develop your love alone. Developing love is a communal activity of the church. Now lastly... In verse twenty five says we must be around each other to stir one another up to love, to agape, and to good works. It says let us encourage one another. In encouragement. I mean, give, give someone encouragement today. Encourage them in some way. See, the world is full of discouragers. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. You know, many times a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept someone on their feet. Blessed is the person, the one who speaks such a word. Verse 25 is not a fourth exhortation as the uh, NIV translate, but rather it's a participial phrase that explains how to carry out the exhortation of verse 24. Note that the command here is not to love one another and perform good deeds, although many other scriptures tell us to do those things. Rather, the command is to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It is the only use of one another in the book of Hebrews. Consider means that you have to give some thought to this or it won't happen. To give thought to to it means that you have to take your focus off of yourself and think about others. What does this other person need to help him or her grow in love and good deeds? Stimulate is an unusual word to use here. It normally has a negative connotation, meaning to provoke. Here the author may be using it ironically to grab attention rather than provoking one another to anger think about how to provoke one another to love and good deeds see this also implies that the christian needs that christian love needs to be worked at it's not automatic it doesn't just happen it requires thought and it requires effort the context where this provoking to love and good deeds takes place is when we assemble together some had dropped out of the church. Maybe they had their feelings hurt by other believers, and now they claimed that they could worship God better alone. Almost invariably, when people drop out of church, their focus is on themselves, not on God or others. Instead of thinking, how can I be used of God to spur others on in love? They think, my needs aren't being met. That church is unfriendly and unloving. But you can practice faith and hope when you're, you're alone. But you can't encourage others to love and good deeds when you're alone. You have to gather with the saints in order to do that. See, the author turns adds that that this ministry involves uh, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, the word encouraging can also mean exhorting. The noun is used of one who comes alongside to give aid, such as an advocate who pleads your case in a court of law. See, if you're in doubt as to whether to encourage or to exhort, you should encourage. <laughs> Save the exhortations for those people you know very well, and only when you have prayed and since the Lord is, is leading you to exhort them. See, the day refers to the coming day of judgment when we will all give an account to Christ. This third command has several important implications. Number one, first, you are your brother's keeper. It is impossible for the pastoral staff and the deacons of our church to shepherd everyone who comes here. For the body to be healthy, every member needs to take responsibility to encourage their fellow members. If you sense that someone may be dropping out or drifting off from the Lord, consider how you can encourage them to deal with the problems that are keeping them away. If they're having a conflict with another believer, encourage them, coach them if need be, to work it out, work through it. If they isolate themselves from the body, it's only a matter of time that the wolves will pick them off. Secondly, this ministry implies knowing one another on more than a superficial level. Again, it is impossible to know everyone in this church well, but each of us can and should know some fairly well. This means meeting together outside of Sunday mornings Our Sunday gatherings are crucial for worship and instruction in God's Word, but it is also of vital importance that you meet with other believers on other occasions so that you can encourage one another in your Christian walks. Finally, this takes some deliberate focus and effort. You have to take your eyes off of yourself and think about others. If you see someone at church who seems lonely or depressed or ill at ease, Take the initiative to introduce yourself and take an interest in him or her. Maybe you need to set up a time to meet with them later in the week. It's really just an application of the golden rule. Treat others as you would want them to treat you. As you see the day approaching, eminence <laughs> is God's device to keep believers expectant and full of hope. See, we need to draw near because His coming is near. I now leave you with today's scripture from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. He writes this, he says, So friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of His sacrifice acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is His body. So let's do it. Full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps His word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out, not avoiding worship together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. I love that. Not just the Christian will give an account to God, but all people will give an account to Him and those without Christ will perish in their sins. First Peter four seventeen says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, people without Christ shall face the eternal wrath and judgment of Almighty God. If you are not a Christian, if you do not have the forgiveness of sins, if you do not know you will go to heaven when you die, I encourage you, I exhort you, turn to Christ, who alone forgives sins and grants eternal life. Jesus Christ is the answer to life and to death. If you turn to Christ, you can know you are saved and you can have full assurance of faith. How is that possible? Because God is faithful. And he promises to save forever those who come to Christ through faith. Oh, these are tremendous promises. What a great passage of scripture. You know, today I just want to thank you all for tuning in. Next week we're going to pick it up right where we left off, verse 26, and move on. Until we see each other again, I just want to encourage you to stay safe and practice good hygiene. Stay studied up in God's word. Eat well. Get some exercise. And whatever you do, give God all the praise and glory and honor that is due His name. We hope to see you all real soon. God bless you and good day.